learn how to fix laptops, get the official Podnuts Laptop Repair Videos at LaptopRepairVideos.com. Podnuts is also proud to support the Citizens Commission on Human Rights, stopping the wrongful drugging of children in our society at CCHRHint.org. Welcome to My Hard Drive Died, episode number 13. My Hard Drive Died is a show about all about hard drive activity and what can go wrong with a drive, how to fix it, how to get data off of it, uh, what happens if it crashes, why it crashes. It's all about hard drives here. And of course, we're going to talk about hard drive. We need to have the uh, hard drive expert. And we do have one, thank God. The co-host of the show, Scott Moulton, is joining us today. As usual. What's going on, Scott? Hey, how you doing, man? Doing good. Haven't talked to you in a while. Yeah, it's been a while. I know you you moved. How's Florida? Oh, I, lo- <laughs> I love, love, love Florida. Did you really? I love oh. it, man. I know. I, hey, you, were, you gave me the warnings about the heat. It's hot. It's really hot. I like heat. I like the sun. All right. That's awesome. <laughs> Something about the sun. <laughs> no, it's, you know, Florida's the sunshine state, and it's well, true. Well, right, you know, it takes care of your depression and your, you know, your, your seasonal problems. Yeah, I guess it. Well, yeah, seasonal problems. I, I don't like the cold, but the, it's it's sunny almost every day, and I, you know what I mean. Like in, in Philly, it's cloudy for a week. You know, in Florida, it's cloudy for a couple hours, and then maybe the sun comes back up. I, I'm just I'm happy. I, I haven't gone through a full fledged summer yet, so I can't say I, I've conquered yeah. the heat. But I think I'll be okay. Hey, what, what's going on with you, man? What's happening? Uh, just staying busy, trying to. Uh, I submitted a, a new talk to ShmooCon, working on some new material. Um, I have a guy working on some animations so that we can go back to doing some animations for some talks. And so uh, it's a massive undertaking again. But uh, if it works out well, uh, ShmooCon will be back in action with some animations and a new website and a couple other things going on. So that's that's kind of what's been keeping me busy lately is dev- designing some new stuff to do for this talk and. Uh, doing some new animations. What do you mean animations? You know, on my previous, uh, all all the ones that I've done at conferences and stuff, a lot of the videos and stuff I have, a lot of the material was animated. It was actually, you know, flash animations. It was not just like a static PowerPoint or something. Right, right, right. Okay. So uh, the solid state ones and the advanced uh, uh, hard drive recovery stuff, all of that was all animated. It took us like a year to build all that stuff. So I had, uh, I probably did four years in a row of animations and spent thousands of dollars doing it. Um, and now we're going to kind of go back to trying to reproduce some new material, new graphics, new animations. Oh, sweet. Just like give it a refresh. Um, it's, it's more than a refresh. It's a completely redone thing. We're not using any of the original stuff that we had before. And all of the new material is all based on some new processes. So none of it is previously old hash stuff. It's, um, and you know, the previous stuff, the previous four or five years that I've done all the presentations is what made it into my class. So when I did the class, uh, a lot of that is all the graphics were used in the book and the manuals. And then we used it in the class to actually, uh, discuss the material and the content from those graphics. So, now we'll be producing some new ones uh, based on newer hard drives and some of the newer problems, uh, spacers and, and motor problems and things. And those things are going to be the things that are going to make it into the new talks next year. Wow. The new talks and the new course? Or, I mean, you're going to include that in the course or that's always well, been part yeah, of it? Well, yeah, uh, I will update the course uh, and, you know, hopefully uh, get all that done by the next rounds. It, it'll probably be after uh, January, maybe February, March, something in there. When is ShmooCon? The end of of January. It's like uh, January 30th or something. I haven't been accepted yet, uh, so there's You'll, always a chance I won't get accepted. Come on, but man. You'll get accepted. And submitted. 
So. <laughs> what, um, where is it? Where is ShmooCon again? It's in D.C. It's, um, they moved hotels this time. So for like three or four years, they've had the same hotels, but they're moving this time to a different hotel. Okay. But they're still in D.C. Cool. Yeah, people should sign up for that if you're in the area or you want to go check it out. Scott's got new stuff for that. Sounds good. All right. What else? Uh, so what do you want to talk about today, Scott? <clears throat> well, uh, the biggest thing lately I've been dealing with is I've, I've, I've had a lot of needs myself to start dealing with online backup and uh, content roaming around. I, you know, as many of you know, you probably have, you know, a handful of machines. I use multiple things. So I use my iPad, my iPhone. I need access to my data, but I also want it backed up. We've been using, traditionally, still using tape on our servers. Uh, we do have backup drives inside the office. So, for instance, um, when we're working on client data, we have a, several RAID 5 arrays that the content's backed up to from, from the machine that we're doing the recovery from to the server for uh, for the client data. But <clears throat> for my own stuff, we've been using uh, tape backup every day and taking it off-site in addition to, you know, a couple other methods of doing internal backup. But if uh, something happened to the tape or the, the building blew up or something, it would be difficult for me to restore the data, get back to my data. So I've actually paid and been testing most of the backup services so that I can kind of get a good feel for quantity and size and speed, how much they cost, um, and then doing it across multiple platforms so that I have access. It's not just for backup now. Now it's more for syncing content as well and trying to get to the content while you're moving around because I spend most of my time on the road. And so I'm not in the office as much as I used to be. So it's really prevalent for me to be able to have uh, some sort of a content with me while I'm traveling. So backups of my classes, uh, backups of my financial files, backups of my emails, everything. Huh. And uh, so, but it's it's very important for me also to cross platforms. Uh, a lot of people are, oh, I'm just a, a Windows guy or I'm just a Mac guy. And uh, I go back and forth between all three platforms. So I go back and forth between Linux, Mac, and Windows. And then between mobile devices, uh, so I have uh, I travel with a couple of laptops. So I travel with a, a Mac and a Windows laptop. I travel with my iPhone and my iPad. And uh, whatever you use, you might want to be able to have access to all of those platforms, including even a web browser. Well, I mean, especially for you, if you're using all three, you need all you need something that's cross-platform. Yeah, it's uh, I you know, so I've just kind of you know put the others out of my mind if they didn't cross platforms and they right. didn't have, you know, uh, an easy method for me to be able to restore and do stuff. So I've been only focusing mostly on the, on those primary platforms. So if they didn't, if they didn't support the others and they decided not to have a, a Mac app, you know, cause that seems to be a tr traditional problem these days. <laughs> right. Uh, I, I can almost understand not having a Linux app, but not having a Mac app and a windows app and an iPhone app and a, an iPad app is, is almost unforgivable. I know these days. Well, so, so what do you like? You've done some testing. Well, yeah. Um, so my my primary thing so far, maybe some maybe some other users can even kick in with some other other things that they've tried. Um, Dropbox. Dropbox is not actually considered necessarily backup per se, but uh, Dropbox is uh, one of the contenders that I've been messing with, as well as Carbonite, Mosey, and um, LogMeIn has a backup app which I uh, discovered uh, shortly after starting to use it, that it did not support Macs, which is kind of strange because it actually runs almost like a Java app. Um, 
Plus log and me it, in plus log me in runs on a Mac. Yeah, log me in runs on a Mac and I tried uh log me in backup at the office. I actually would have selected log me in backup as my primary one because it is it was the fastest and easiest to use of all the backups, did the multiple things that I wanted it to do, had a full-fledged app that looked like a backup app. Um and it, it, I, I got to say it was the fastest by far. Like I, I had uh, um, like 13 gigs on my network and I installed LogMeIn backup on my server and I told it to dump it to, to LogMeIn's backup service. And it did, uh, it did something like 13, 14 gigs in like 35 minutes. And it was by far faster than like Carbonite or Mosey. It seems to me like Carbonite and Mosey seem to throttle their speeds down and they try to do everything when they're idle or off times. But trying to do, you know, 15 gigs on Carbonite, uh, especially from my Mac, seemed to be like it was going to take two days. Really? Um, and how long did and it take? How long did it take log me in? 30 minutes. Damn. You, yeah, sh- you so should demand. It, uh, it, you should demand that they ha- make a Mac app. Yeah, I uh, and maybe this is the forum in which we start to bring this up because because uh, seriously, uh, from a Windows side and a Windows perspective, it did a fantastic job of doing the backup uh, and faster, better compressions. You know, had security. It, it, it's because I, I love LogMeIn. Period. I think LogMeIn, as far as a platform, uh, is fantastic. Um, I did try SkyDrive and i iDrive and um, again, uh, you know, back to doing the syncing and stuff with um, Dropbox. Um, you, you know, as far as space and size goes, there's a lot of cool things. Like SkyDrive, you get 25 gigs free. With iDrive, you've got a, you you get basically like a, yeah, see, that's that's the, the LogMeIn backup so- software itself. And it actually does, it kind of indicates like the LogMeIn software actually kind of indicates like it's, you know, for all the platforms, like you can install the Mac app. But when you install it, it it turns out to be only log me in that you're installing, not the log me in backup software. So oh, that's cheesy. Um, so uh, so you know, as far as money and trying to do all of the different ones, everybody you know has uh, kind of a a a base functionality that you get for free, or you know, two gigs here, or you know, one gig here. Uh, and then most of them, obviously, by the time you actually get to a spot where you actually need space, you're paying for the space. Um, I didn't see, and I tried to review LogMeIn's uh, backup software to see if there was any limitations on size. It's like $39 a year, and it was smoking fast, uh, did compression and security, but they don't list anything that says about space. So I don't know if I say I want to back up my whole server and you know throw 300 gigs on there, if, uh, if it's going to let me. Uh, everything that I tried and everything I did was pretty straightforward. And uh, for $39 a year... That's pretty awesome uh, if it's unlimited, if there's no space uh, limitations, and especially with the speed. Because uh, Carbonite is unlimited on size, and Carbonite right. is like $50 a year. And uh, I think I paid for three years of Carbonite, and I got it for uh, $129 or something. But Carbonite was so much slower, and their right. app was uh, less functional you from know, a server's perspective. Uh, you know, LogMeIn yeah. has conveniently left that data out for some reason. Well, and log me in. Uh, I actually uh, had to go to the manual and then search for requirements. They didn't list it on their main page. But when you actually look at log me in, well, you can actually click on install me. And then when you install it, it's the log me in client. It's not the backup client. So gotcha. you can actually, you know, because when you click on it, it'll ask you for your login name and password and you can go 
do that. But gotcha. so what? What were you saying about carbonite? You didn't like it. Well, Bes- I like carbonite, and speed? I did pay money for carbonite, but carbonite is slow. And so, other than just using it, just flat out strictly backup, and that you have a lot of time, like you know, your machine's idle while you're traveling for weeks at a time, kind of like what I do. Uh, you know, then your bandwidth is being slowly sucked up. But it, it was just so long to do anything, and, you know, to move, you know, twenty gigs over to carbonite service was was just like pulling hair. I mean, it just. It, you know, one of the other things I've noticed, too, with Carbonite, at least on the Mac side, I didn't spend a lot of time with it on the Windows side because, you know, I kind of go back and forth a little bit. But on the uh, on the Mac side, if you created a new folder in a folder that was already identified by Carbonite, it didn't identify that folder as a folder that it was going to back up. So I had to specifically go and select the folder after I created a new folder. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Was so under you mean a, fol- fol- a folder in a folder? Yeah, so I have a folder that says always back this folder up, uh-huh. and then when I create a new folder in there, it it came up as red. It came up as an item that was not going to be backed up unless oh, I went to select what? it. And so that's horrible. That's what I thought too. Uh, like I said, you know, if, you know, if I know what it is, I'm going to select and back up, and I you know make sure that it's doing its job. That's I guess that's kind of the downside. You know, I, I didn't go back and test the Windows side to see whether or not I could actually do something with the Windows side. But, you know, since you're paying for it by client, because um, it, these services, most of them seem to be by client. You uh, you basically identify the machine you're going to use. You assign that machine to it. And you can't go, like, have five clients and drop them all into the same one and have that work. Um, most of them don't. But there are some that do, obviously, like SkyDrive. You could use whatever tool that you actually talk to with SkyDrive. And so you had 25 gigs of space and you could use their mesh network tools. And they had one for Windows, you know, being that it's, you know, SkyDrive is a Microsoft, um, it's 25 gigs of free space, basically, for the live account type stuff. And they have a mesh client that you can actually use on a Macintosh so that you can, you know, drag and drop stuff into a folder and it makes its way back to the SkyDrive box and saves the data there. Uh, it was functional. I just found it to be, again, kind of slow and seemed to take a while to do exactly what I wanted. Um, At least it's free, up, though. Go ahead. At least it's free, though. Yeah, it's free, but uh, you have to do some work to make things automated. So if you want to, if you kind of want things to be automated from a from a drag and drop perspective, you might have to buy a third party something that uses SkyDrive to uh, drop it on there. Uh, and I had kind of similar problems kind of with, um, with iDrive, uh, iDrive did do some syncing stuff, but, and, it, and iDrive is basically 20 gigs, but you pay for it. It's, it's, uh, Apple's plan. And, uh, so iDrive is basically what you get as part of the, you know, mobile me platform that they have. Uh, and it, it does work and it does show up as like a drive letter on your computer and you can drag and drop files to it. Again, there, it wasn't really uh, necessarily automated from a standpoint of a backup process, but if you wanted to be able to use iDrive, you can, you know, you can use it on your, on all of your apples and you can link to it and you can do stuff. Uh, you can log into it through a web browser and get access to your files. But I just found it to be a, a little bit of difficult work to actually try to get it to be a backup system or do something with it. Um, Plus it's not cross platform. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, it's not going to be very convenient for me. You could still mount iDrive and then have files dropped on a, from a window system onto it or through the web browser. But 
again, it wasn't like an automated, I want my server or these files to always be backed up and, you know, kind of be accessible from other, from other platforms. But there is, there is ways to get to it from a windows machine or put things in it from a windows machine. Um, so, so I ended up kind of, by the time I actually got around to it, um, for files, for individual files, uh, I kind of ended up settling mostly on Dropbox. Uh, have you ever used Dropbox before? Yeah, not extensively, but I, I do pictures here and there when I or files when I need them here and there. I use the free version. Right. A lot of our guys yeah, like so it, though. A lot of the, the people who listen like it. I think it's a fantastic tool from a standpoint. You know, it, you know, it kind of does something slightly there. It's not necessarily backup per se. What what I typically am thinking of when I'm doing this is I replace my current folder system by using Drop because Dropbox basically acts like a folder on your machine. So then you have your local storage, and then it syncs its way up to the server, and then makes its way syncing it to all of your other platforms, all of your other devices. And so eventually, you know, it kind of makes its way to everything. Once you've turned it on and you've been logged in a while, your files will make their way down to your your Mac or whatever items that you've registered. Um, initially, Dropbox is only two gigs, so two gigs isn't very useful for me. Um, you know, typically I'm looking at business files, even over the years, the business files, the forms and spreadsheets and things like that. Um, I'm looking at I need at least 20 to 40 gigs, um, usually rounding out somewhere between 60 and 80 gigs of all the stuff that I actually have that are necessary files. Uh, these don't include things like, you know, your obvious things like your photos and your music. Uh, those things um, are a little bit more difficult to deal with because, like, my photos, uh, I have, like, uh, 400 gigs of photos. Wow. And I probably have three terabytes of music now. You know, at least from that standpoint, I'm not considering that I'm necessarily going to back those up online or do or use those as a resource. I'll, you know, carry around another uh, hard drive or something to sync those to or something. But I, I'm mostly concerned with how I use my business file. So I ended up with, you know, folders being mounted on all of my machines that are Dropbox. And then I just started working out of that folder instead of saying I want to do a backup on these particular files. And that seems to be very convenient so far. I've been able to live with that as a whole, you know, you know, before with the two gigs of Dropbox, um, like I said, it was great for little small things and, you know, kind of like Evernote is. Uh, if you've ever used Evernote, Evernote is a fantastic uh, tool for doing some free things from a standpoint of I make some notes and I save it here and then whatever platform I happen to be on later, I can look up those notes and that's great. Um, I kind of viewed, you know, uh, um, uh, Dropbox kind of the same way because two gigs was so small to deal with. Mm -hmm. But uh, so I upgraded to their 100 gig package. And so basically the 100 gigs uh, gives me enough space to do the primary stuff for all my business stuff and keep my files uh, kind of roaming. And, uh, and believe it or not, it's kind of funny because I still don't trust necessarily that one service where I keep my files is going to last. You know, what happens if Dropbox goes out of business tomorrow or somebody buys them? You know, do you get warning before your stuff disappears? So uh, I use Carbonite to back up Dropbox. No, no. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. You point it right at the same folder <laughs> and you select all your stuff. And uh, so now it's living in two places. <laughs> so Carbonite is now backing up all my Dropbox. That's files. hilarious. But I can't believe that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that's how the story was going to end. But in Dropbox, like, doesn't it, like you said, you sync up all the folders, you put everything in the folders, and then um, Dropbox will automatically download whatever you upload to all your computers, right? Well, what if you don't want that? Like, say you upload 30 gigs and you turn on your Windows machine. Is it going to try to download everything in the in the Dropbox folder from the cloud down to your 
your PC or you just don't set it to do that? Um, so far, it, it basically syncs everything for all the boxes for whatever whatever is going on. I mean, it's uh, so it syncs, uh, meaning it puts it on each computer. It doesn't leave it in the cloud. Well, it does leave it in the cloud, but it also syncs the current version to all the computers. So basically, everything stays in tune. But what about if you want to use like the iPhone app? Obviously, it doesn't download everything to the iPhone. No, the uh, iPhone app is kind of like kind of like a web app. It's uh, it, you use the iPhone app, and you can see the files that you want. It has its own viewer and stuff, and so you click on it, and you can view the files that are in the cloud. So, uh, so ultimately, if uh, if I want to get access to a particular file, you know, I know, oh look, I saved this financial document, and I have to be at my lawyer's, and I want to look it up. I can pull up that particular financial document while I'm on the iPhone or my iPad or whatever, uh, and then turn around and email it or do whatever you want to do, drop it in Evernote <laughs> and put it back out in the cloud, <laughs> whatever you want to do from that perspective. But uh, You're like but going ultimate, cloud crazy. Well, you know, I'm looking at redundancy from a physical platform. I'm, I'm traveling. I mean, like I've been gone almost 10 or 11 months this year, uh, you know, two or three weeks a, a month for that long. And basically by the time I get back, I'm too tired to actually think of anything or try to go and back up work I did or anything like that. So I've been primarily just focusing now on, you know, the multiple laptops that I carry with me and then the portable platforms with, you know, whatever I'm working on, making sure that it stays somewhere that's accessible. Now I have my own. I mean, I I use uh, free NAS servers in my office with static IP numbers and I can sync my Macs and my my, uh, PowerPoint presentations and things like that back to my uh, my Terra servers, basically in the office. Um, it just, you know, it's just something that I have to be a little more conscious with, though, to actually make it happen or leave them on a schedule and leave the machine on or something. Whereas it seems like I, I don't really have to pay much attention to that with a Dropbox hmm. uh, or Carbonite or most of the others from that standpoint. And how much does Dropbox cost again to upgrade to the 100 gig? Um, it's, I think it's like $20, $20 a month or something. It's a, I paid for a year plan and it was $200. Okay. Yeah. That ain't, so, bad. That ain't bad. It's a, a little pricey by comparison to some of the other plans that are out there. When you look at Carbonite and it's $50 and it's unlimited space, you know, the, the, the whole problem with unlimited space is apparently at the speeds that they're at trying to get your content to it unlimited. <laughs> Well, is it's a nightmare for the I mean, first, I, like for the said, first it's time. It's going to take a week for twenty gigs. Yeah, for the well, for the first upload. But I mean, how often are you going to upload twenty well, gigs? You got to get it back when you have a crash, too, right? So if it's going to come back at that same speed, well, I mean, I, I don't know. I hope I don't have to wait a week for nah, my material. It, well, does it come back at that speed? So far, all my tests seem to be that my bandwidth was about the same. Really? Was, I, I did. I had no control over how fast. I, I didn't get to say I'd like you to be faster today and get my content back. Now, that was why I noticed that um, the only one that seemed to be smoking fast was LogMeIn Backup. I was so impressed with its speed. I mean, and, and maybe ultimately that's where I end up just saying, well, my servers are going to back up with LogMeIn or something. But, um, but you know, then you have the difficulty of no other apps to get your data back with it either. So, you know, unless you're just going to use the same Windows app and most of my stuff is Mac, so I mean, I got to go install a virtual machine on it or something or right, whatever. But right. it's pain in the butt. Yeah, it's uh, it just it it was a little bit more cumbersome for me to kind of deal with the multiple platform thing, and it's just so uh, you know, they've had a Mac app for Log Me In itself for over a year, two years now, yeah. and 
it seems kind of you know ridiculous to me. I mean, maybe they're only focusing on the business market, and that's where they think maybe log being backup will work. But my my first guess is they're probably not selling a lot at this point, and uh, maybe that's kind of the problem. Yeah, I don't know. They should definitely. I'm mean, how how hard is it going to be to make the the Apple app, the Mac app? It's they should definitely uh, make especially it. since it's uh you know basically a Java based application in the first place, right? So it doesn't seem like it would be that difficult for them to create the app so that it knew, you know, how to upload your data or, you know, a web dab or something. How fast was Dropbox? Dropbox is pretty fast, but you don't notice it from a standpoint of um, the content that it uploads is, you know, it puts, you put a file and you work on it locally. And so it syncs, but it doesn't, it, you're not paying attention to it. In other words, it just does it on its own and starts to sync. Uh, but I did uh, I did two gigs in about 15 minutes or so. So it's not as fast as log me in, but I also was more invisible. I just worked off of it hmm. and didn't have anything. So once it's local to your machine and you're working on stuff, it syncs back at its own speed. But it seems to be fairly fast from a standpoint of uh, um, not as bad as Carbonite from that standpoint. Yeah. Cool. Oh, hey man. So, Th- and, thanks and for again, the it might just be that maybe uh, Carbonite, maybe they don't treat their Mac app with uh, respect. <laughs> I, I haven't spent any time dealing because again, you had to pay for it with another, with another, uh, um, you know, client on oh, another machine serious? if I was going to do it. So I guess I could set up Carbonite as a trial and error and see whether or not it works on another machine. There's no free uh, trial for it. You can test it on your PC. Well, I, I, yes, you can test it on your, but I just haven't done it on the, because I spend most of my time with Mac. So I got, you know, five Macs I'm surrounded by. So I just haven't spent time sitting in my office where I use my Windows machines primarily right. to uh, to see whether or not Carbonite was going to do a faster job on it compared to a Mac. Right. But again, keep in mind, I was looking at multiple platforms. And so regardless of whether or not it's faster or not, it wasn't fast enough on my, because here, uh, where I'm at, I'm paying for a, a 12 uh, megabit connection, and so I have 12 megabits down and 3 megabits up, so that should have been enough to at least get my job done. In my office, I have 29 megabits down and 17 megabits up. So it was, you know, the that's what I noticed about LogBM when I ran it from the office. It was smoking fast, and, you know, it was, you know, we were getting like uh, two, 2 or 3 megabit compared to everything else that was much slower than that. Even though you had the upload speed, it was still throttling it. Uh, or maybe that was, you know, the maximum that log me in could. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if they, if they throttled it, uh, you know, it just might be where they have their servers or what they actually have on their throttling right. side. Right. Cool. So, Thanks for the extensive review. This is good stuff. Yeah. I, I mean, ultimately as we're, you know, moving ahead, there's going to be more and more, um, uh, somebody I saw mentioned crash plan. Um, I'm familiar with crash plan, but I didn't, I didn't do anything with crash plan for this particular thing. Uh, if I remember correctly, crash plan automatically basically takes multiple machines and distributes your data across them. Kind of like a, you know, making your machines a raid or whatever from that standpoint. Um, so I didn't really spend much time with that. Somebody can correct me if I was wrong on that, and maybe it's something I should look at. But uh, I, my understanding is that speed was not much better from mm-hmm. a standpoint of what what I was already trying to do with Carbonite or several of the others. Right. Okay. Good to know. Another option. All right. Anything else you want to go over on the backup stuff, or uh, should we tread into other regions? Uh, that was the primary thing. Uh, you know, ultimately, it still comes down to the fact that tape was faster and more portable. <laughs> <laughs> so tape was, uh, you know, tape is still an option that I will probably leave in place. 
in addition to the fact that it can live in the live in the cloud as well. Uh, I'm not very trusting again of the platforms out there themselves and things disappearing uh, at will. And, you know, that's one of the bad things. I think Microsoft over time has had a lot of things that were live and then just disappeared. And so I'm a little worried that, you know, you put too much stake in your data on, you know, a free service for Microsoft that it might not be there, you know, in three weeks or what, you right. know, what happens if, you know, you're gone for a month and you're in Europe and they say, oh, in 30 days, we're going to shut the service right, down. Right, right. I was going to say, they pro- will probably give you warning, probably. But like you yeah. said, if you're still, if you're gone for a month, you're kind of screwed. Well, you know, this is the same thing that happened with a DRM in music, you know, that, you know, like Walmart once sold DRM music and then they they decided to shut their servers down. Nobody's music would play anymore, right. you know, things right. like that. And so, you know, I would hate to get stuck in a situation where your data, is, you know, this is the only place that it existed. Right. Well, I mean, you you got it backed up. It sounds like, especially you, you got it backed up at several places. You got to, the, the in the office on the raid, you got the tapes. Now you got the cloud. Or, and now you got Dropbox and Carbonite. You're set. Yep. You're set. I yeah, think. in addition to piles of USB memories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. That's now, awesome. I, I'm pretty adamant about backup. I have I have a ton of backup. You should be. As the hard yeah. drive expert. All right. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a large quantity of data, though. So Yeah. I want to take a quick minute here to talk about the Citizens Commission on Human Rights. As I mentioned in the beginning of the show, I'm a proud supporter, and they are a watchdog group that uh, looks for wrongdoings in the field of prescribing psychiatric drugs. And this is definitely becoming a problem in our society with our children and our friends. And if uh, anybody wants to get more information on that and see what they can do about it, you can go to cchrint.org. Thanks. Hey, um, is there any new stuff uh, in the hard drive field um, since we last talked that we should know about? You know, we got we got uh, SSD memory, we got um, hybrid drives, racetrack memory. Any anything? What's new in the news? Well, uh, you know, racetrack memory. They've just been making more and more announcements. They've you know basically racetrack memory has been around for a while and and basically you know pr- trying to produce a a, a commercial. Uh, application for it in the market right now. So you're probably still looking at another five to seven years before we even see a racetrack memory drive out. Um, However, he's, you know, uh, Stuart Parkins, who who developed it, uh, is basically doing more and more with regards to trying to get it out there and let people know that it exists. Um, there's there, There's been some movement. Most of my current work has been in solid-state drives and in trying to deal with uh, platter assemblies that are when we actually have a motor that is seized or something along those lines that the platters are actually stuck inside the drive, trying to deal with new ways of dealing with those platters and how they're actually stuck in the in their current position. Uh, so that's been most of where the newest work has been lately. There's there's a little bit of movement on the solid state side, trying to deal with uh, you know again NAND technology and trying to image NAND technology. I'm still not a big fan of it as a whole. Um, it's a method of of trying to get to the data, but it's still very uh, you know it's a it's a very low rate of success by comparison to what hard drives currently are. Yeah, I mean, I kind of wanted to ask, if you're doing a lot of work on them, is it a totally different beast? I mean, you have to relearn technologies or learn new technologies just to work on them? Yeah, you have to relearn new technology. It's more of an electrical-based platform as opposed to a mechanical-based platform. So you're dealing with a lot more, uh, you know, possibilities or problems with things blowing on a board, replacing them, soldering, things like that, where, you know, at least with hard drives, for the most part, that's not necessarily true. There are some things for board repair that you do, but it's not the 
not necessarily the main component of the drive. Right. A lot of times we're dealing with heads where we're trying to replace them or we're dealing with platters and a motor that seized. Right. Um, there are problems with boards and we have to do some basic repairs, but most of the time, most of the repairs on, on the PCB boards for a hard drive are, you know, one or two chips that are necessary to be moved. So you unsolder those and solder those to a new board. When you're dealing with solid state, uh, starting to remove the memory and trying to image the memory is for the most part, a disaster. Um, so that's what you do. you just remove the chip. Yeah. You remove the chip, you image the chip, and then you try to, uh, take that data and convert it back to something that the controller chip actually did the layout for. <laughs> and so far, that's been a pretty difficult task as a whole. Uh, not not high success rate. Um, most of the best people I've ever heard trying to do any of the stuff still haven't surpassed 50% of the stuff that they're actually doing and being successful with it. So I, I, I'm just not, I've been doing it for a while now, over a year or two years, and I'm not happy with where it currently stands it's very difficult to say uh you know when a, a hard drive or a memory stick or something comes in that solid state that you can even repair it or fix it most of the time most of your stuff that you're fixing ends up being i'm going to look for a chip or something that's broken or burnt or uh, there still is something called tbs's they're basically uh um kind of like a resistor on the board that blows and you replace that and so it's basically um transient voltage suppressor and when you have a bad power supply or something along those lines, it blows this particular chip. So you can actually look for this thing and replace it or remove it. In a lot of cases, you can actually get access to the data again. So that's, but most well, that's, of an, that's an, e this. that's an easy fix for SSD comparatively. Uh, it is, it's an easy fix. If you can find out which one it is and right. you can figure, and it's, it's, that's the hardest part is you're working with very, very small, uh, at this point and even trying to take a meter trying to you know use an oscilloscope trying to figure out which one is bad is a is a massive undertaking now what do you recommend for people who want to do data recovery on uh ssd drives is there some software that's good or do we need to all get like freaking machines that replace chips or what what, what should our technicians out there do well, right now, that's not a software-based uh, solution at all, um, not from a standpoint of not without doing something to the hardware, pulling something off, imaging it, doing whatever. Um, I, I mean, I wish I had good news from that perspective <laughs> and that I could tell you that it was going to be something, you know, go buy this and it will work. Right. Uh, but no, we're not in that category at all. The problem is, is that with solid state stuff, there's a controller chip and the controller chip has a scheme on it, a formula for how the data is going to be encoded and written across multiple NAND chips, flash NAND chips. And there it's kind of like super fragmentation, like it's like written all over the place and nothing kind of goes together uh, without this controller chip telling you how it goes together. Hmm. And so right now, the problem with these controller chips are is that they're kind of proprietary. Uh, so, you know, SanDisk makes their own and Toshiba might make one. And, you know, there may be 20 other manufacturers that make a controller chip and they all have to be reverse engineered for you to actually know how the layout actually works and how to recover that data. So you can't just take it, image it and put it back on something and have data. It, it doesn't even look like data when you're actually <laughs> looking at it. <laughs> Damn, that's a shame. Most, I guess something's going to have to happen. I mean, there, there's going to be some there's, there's a few companies working on it. There are a few solutions that are in the works. Um, uh, you know, at this point, it's difficult for me to say they look promising because the success rate is still so low. And most of it focuses, again, on imaging these individual chips. 
And I'm not sure that that's really the best way to, to go about trying to fix these things. It seems like focusing on board repair and electronics is a lot is going to be a lot more prevalent than trying to deal specifically with let's image some chips. So plus, I've been kind um, of working my way backwards on that. Yeah. Plus the companies probably don't care. I mean, they well, the companies that make them obviously are not concerned with whether or not you can recover. Right. I mean, they're, they're, they're making a product that's going to expire and they know it's going to exactly. expire. Exactly. And so that same thing with hard drives though. That hasn't changed. Yeah. Good point. Um, what do you recommend brand-wise for SSDs at this point? Online backup. <laughs> no, just kidding. Uh, brand-wise, uh, you know, that kind of changes from day to day at this point. It's moving very fast. Um, I, You know, Intel still a strong contender. There's OCZ, uh, uh, OCZ. There's a couple of strong contenders out there with regards to that. Most of the time, the issue is going to be is that whatever you're going to get as far as an SSD drive is going to start coming in the product. So kind of like MacBook Air now has them basically already on a board. They're already put in. So whatever you're buying your laptop or buying your equipment, you know, you know us as, you know, computer hackers slash, you know, um, hobbyists slash professionals, we, we might do our own work. We may go buy a drive and put it in. But the consumer as a whole is going to start buying uh, systems that are already built with it. And so as they start manufacturing more and more of these, you know, there's only so much shelf space. They're gradually going to start replacing the shelf space at Best Buy or whatever with more and more uh, systems that have a 256 gig solid state hard drive in them. Mm -hmm. And whatever's in them is what the consumer is going to be stuck with. Regardless of what you think you know, speed-wise or what you want to purchase or what you want to do, the, the, the thing is is that almost all of the chips are all made from the same people. The difference is the controller chip and the algorithm that they use for this uh, wear leveling scheme and how the content is written is the major difference in how fast the device is itself. Huh. But they all have the same problems. Okay. All right. Just, yeah, I was just wondering um, what you thought was good. Um, what did I want to ask you? Last thing, hybrid drives, and then we'll do some emails. you have any opinion on uh, how the hybrid drives are coming along these days? Well, uh, I'm not a big fan of hybrid drives. I wasn't a big fan of them before. I kind of think it's kind of lame, actually. Um, you know, it, especially at the size that the new hybrid drives are being made at, you know, where you're ending up with a 4-gig, you know, uh, flash chip on your drive itself and so you have this four gig area of flash and then you have a spinning disk well you know what's what makes that any better than having you know a spinning disk and a, a solid state hard drive right. you know in two different well, i mean you know other than space wise maybe in a smaller laptop or something like that but there's no we've seen this before we've tried this before it's been done before and i got to be honest with you if you know four gigs of flash i can do that with a usb memory stick i don't see a whole lot of benefit <laughs> just just because you're gonna say we can't even install an operating system anymore on four gigs so you know you can't say i'm gonna boot from this four gigs and then you know switch to my spinning right. it's just not it's just not working these days and yes. i think it's a waste of time until they start with i got a 256 gig solid state and a one terabyte spinning disk that, well, you know, maybe that's something that I'd buy all in one drive, right, all in one drive, but that's going to be pretty difficult to come up with too, because of the size of the chips and the right. amount of chips and the space that's necessary. You're going to be back to at least currently, uh, you know, next two years, maybe something else will change. But huh. right now it just, I, I'm not a fan of them. I don't think, you know, the older versions of the solid states that were combined with spinning disk, the hybrid drives had to have a special driver. And so at the time, Vista was the only one that supported that. 
So we've kind of gotten away from that by moving to uh, solid state drives that are now actually using a US, you know, an IDE interface without having to have a driver or a SATA interface. Um, and at least from that standpoint, there's there's some potential that if they were large enough, it may be usable. But you know, seriously, if you're not talking about at least 64 gigs or 128 gigs, what's the point? Gotcha. All right. Thanks for the input. You want to do some emails now, or? Sure. Yeah. All right. I have an email here. I have a bunch, and uh, I actually have about five actually. And then um, I think I might have the one that you uh, you talked about earlier, Scott. But if not, I'll just you send it to me, so I'll read that one. But this one's from Stevo. He says. I have some questions for Scott. Since he, um, God, how he words this, I, I would not like to read. Um, oh, he was, Steve was asking about hard drive copiers the other, uh, the, the last time we did a show, and you had some opinions on it. So he says, I have some questions for Scott. Since he bitch slapped my standalone hard drive <laughs> copier <laughs> pretty hard in the last show, I'm not very impressed with Bytech. Uh, there, there are other imaging tools that I prefer, such as the Deep Spar Disk Imager. I was feeling down until he turned um, on turned on you for using CheckDisk slash R. This is a dangerous tool. It's a very dumb piece of software. In some cases, it simply eats and records your files. Okay, that was just his statement. Now, now is for his show questions. In one of your past shows, Scott said he that running CheckDisk is a dangerous tool. Um, let's see. Now I'm taking on. Uh, he it will destroy a sector with one bit bad. Now I'm talking on a healthy drive only, not one showing any signs of distress. How would using SpinWrite as a tool to recover the bad sectors only? Um, not as a tool for fixing broken hard drives. Since it will fix a sector and recover 511 out of 512 bits or save one bit out of 512, this seems like the tool to use before ever using check disk slash R. So I guess he's asking um, using SpinWrite to recover bad okay. sectors instead yeah, of check so, disk. Well, first thing is, if it was a perfectly good drive, supposedly, uh, you, should, you shouldn't have any bad sectors. <laughs> so... You know, I so I guess he's he's just happy that I equally bitch slapped you. I think that's what it is, and not just you know both of you. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I think he's just impressed that it wasn't you know him by himself. Uh, and again, I, I think if I was if I made the statement correctly, uh, I I basically just thought that these cheap copiers are are not doing a whole lot more than DD is. So you know, it's a button with uh, you know some Linux embedded thing, and it hits you hit a button and it does a DD from one drive to another, and it doesn't let you resize, doesn't let you deal with anything. So you know, if you're going to do those, uh, you know, there's 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 probably better tools to use and probably better options than just using their little box. But uh, as far as I, I certainly would say, Spinrite is a better choice than CheckDisk. Uh, from that standpoint, you know, CheckDisk's basic purpose again is to get your drive back into a bootable state, even if it has to kill some data. So, in, in that particular realm, you know, it, it'll just knob off a directory or something and get rid of a file that you don't, you know, it doesn't think you need, and you know, get you back into a bootable state. So that's okay if that's all you care about. But right. you know, if you lose a file or you lose some software, and that's a big deal. And Spinrite, you may have a better chance, obviously, that Spinrite, Spinrite does some really cool stuff. I, I'm just not happy that Spinrite doesn't copy it to another drive. Right. I, I don't like making changes 
on a currently existing drive, there is obviously times where some really bad stuff happens. If you're in a hurry and, you know, the machine is somewhat backed up and you don't really care that much about it, uh, you know, sure, you know, make your changes to your original hard drive. Right. Fine. Um, ultimately, just know that there's a risk there. Anytime that you're making changes to an original hard drive that you have your data on, you have danger. And it may not boot again, or it may destroy some data, or it may be the last time that you've ever seen something. So, right. so if your option is uh, run SpinWrite or run CheckDisk, okay, run SpinWrite. Okay. okay. Thank you, and thanks for the email, Steve-O. Hope you're happy that uh, we both got bitch slapped on that one. <laughs> All right. This one is from Mike. He says, my question's for Scott. Um, I see that DeepSpar sells the PC3000 Flash, which is a NAND flash reader capable of getting the data from the USB thumb drive memory chip if I desolder it. Um, little background before we, he asked the question. He said he had a, he has a USB thumb drive that his sister-in-law says just stopped working. She wants me to see if I can recover the kids' pictures that I have stored there. I have plugged it into Windows and Linux boxes. Both neither see the drive. The LED on the drive also does not light. I've tried reflowing the solder on the four USB pins, um, but that didn't work either. Okay, so back to his question. The DeepSpark disk, disk imager um, is capable of getting the data from the USB thumb drive memory chip if I desolder it. Is this expensive, and would it be worth purchasing for future recoveries? Okay, so the first thing is is uh, it's not a deep, it's not the deep spar. Uh, he said it right, I think the first time, which was PC three thousand flash is what it's called. And uh, I do have one of these. I own one of these. And yes, you, it's the same thing that we just described a little bit earlier in the in the conversation. You do have to unsolder the memory and put it in this reader, and then. There's a little bit more to it. You actually have to, you know, know what the chip is and decode the chip and then go through, you know, 25 different things to try to figure out how it's laid out. And if there's multiple chips, you've got to read them, put them together and weave them together. It's uh, $4,800 for this tool. And there is a yearly update fee that will be coming. They haven't been charging a yearly update fee yet, mainly because I don't think uh, they're far enough along that they could say it successfully works enough. Uh, but in the future, obviously, um, they're going to charge, uh, I think it was $800 or $1,200 or something update a year for updates. Fee? Give me a break. Yeah. So, okay, sorry. It's not the DeepSpar disk imager. It was the PC3000 Flash. Okay. But it's made by, yes. Deep, my, made by DeepSpar. All right. So, I, I don't... Is um, it, no, it's, it's not made by DeepSpar. It's made by Ace Data Recovery Labs, uh, which is a Russian company. And so, that's... Uh, it's been, you know, the manuals uh, interpreted. It's all from Russia. Okay. Not DeepSpar. Um is it worth Spar sells it. They're the reseller. Uh, oh, they resell it. Okay, my bad. Does uh, is it worth it? You think? I don't know. It depends how many repairs he does, right? Or how many? How much demand he has for doing this type of job? Well, um, I have two of these. I have the one from China that's made by Salvation Data, and I have the one from DeepSpar from you know the Ace Labs. Uh, Do you, um, is it worth gosh. it? <laughs> No, I would have to say right now I wouldn't spend the money. <laughs> Can you return it? <laughs> you know, for what I do as they advance and eventually one day it may actually be the tool. You know, they may know all of the algorithms. They may know everything. They may know, you know, at some point in time, you know, we're at the beginning of this cycle. I mean, keep in mind that a lot of the other tools we have have been around for 10, 15 years, and they've advanced as drives have advanced. And it was a lot slower in the takeoff. And 
you know, it was there wasn't as much that had to be reverse engineered compared to what there is today. Right. So now starting all over again with NAND and all these chip manufacturers, you know, making stuff up every day of the week because they want to be, uh, you know, the winner that gets paid the most money for their algorithm. Um, it's a lot harder. It's a lot harder job today, I think, to do that to get mm-hmm. it done than it was. Sooner or later, it's going to happen. Sooner or right. later, someone's going to get it. It's going to work, or it's going to work on the majority of devices. Or, you know, let's say, what if what if we just said eventually one day, SanDisk is the winner, and everybody had to, you know, I'm just using that as an example. Don't, you know, I'm not selling out here. Um, <laughs> you know, what if SanDisk is the winner, and everybody uses their algorithm? Well, then we have one algorithm that maybe we can reverse engineer that one instead of 45 algorithms to figure out which one's the best one. Why would they even want? I mean, I don't see that ever happening. Why would even? Why would it be beneficial for those companies to even have a winner, so they don't have to make algorithms in the future? Well, I mean, understand that for every everything that's out there, you know, we have like, for instance, we have you know four or five major manufacturers of hard drives left. So you only have to reverse engineer what's going on with those particular hard drives by comparison to forty five vendors. Uh-huh. So at some point in time, somebody's gonna gonna be the primary winner. Somebody's going to be the algorithm that people are going to use as opposed to every day of the week, we have nothing that's the same. So what we're doing today is not the same as it was six months ago. You can have, for instance, you can have a USB drive that's made in Europe and a USB drive, the exact same brand, model, and everything made in the United States. And they may have two completely different algorithms because we may have export laws that don't allow us to use the same algorithm as some other country does, blah, 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 for whatever day of the week those things are. But I'm just saying that that's what ends up happening is we've got, you know, a million different algorithms now to deal with. And it's, and we're at the beginning of it. We haven't figured this stuff out. Um, and, you know, I see that somebody says they don't care much for the stuff in Russia. The problem is, is that none of the data recovery stuff is made in the United States. All of the good stuff, all of the really good stuff is all made in Russia. Wow. So Russia right now is the leader in data recovery wow. uh, as far as making equipment. And, uh, you Ooh. know, China may be a second, but, you know, there's nobody else. There isn't anybody. Else. India is <laughs> trying. Some people in India working on wow. some stuff. Who would have thought That's it? about it. All right, uh, Mike has a second part of his que- to his question. He says, as an alternative way to recover, could I purchase another USB thumb drive, same manufacturer, model, and capacity? And assuming the problem is the controller chip, swatch, swap the memory chips and recover the data? Is yes, this, is this that a- would be a fantastic method. That's probably his best possible choice. If he can solder good enough that he can he can remove a chip and resolder it to the other board. Your problem is, is that how do you know they're exactly the same? Uh you know, there's no real good indication. Like on hard drives, when you read the label, if you can match those things, you pretty much know what you have. On solid and USB thumb drives, not so good. You know, you buy two plastic containers, and they both are black, and you don't know what's inside them. Then you I open see. them up, and then hopefully, if you can get two that look identical, maybe have the same model number. Maybe the algorithm was the same. Maybe Because you know, they can update their algorithm, and their algorithm from six months apart might not be the same algorithm. I mean, it's... It's possible, gotcha. but you know the best possible option is to find another as close to identical and resolder that. All right, thank you, Scott. Next question: 
Hello, I heard Scott mention IDE to SATA bridges before, and I wanted his recommendation on specific brands, particularly which appear, quote, transparent to the ATA controller. I've done a lot of searching, and I read where people have had problems with the device causing the hard drive to show up as something else, even on a deep spar, but no one... Oh, but no one that has successfully used one ever states who made it. Thank you. And that's from Leaf. Huh. Okay. Uh, I will have to like send an email or tell some, because I just buy like 20 at a time and I have, you know, they're, they're a basic bridge board. And when I buy them, I just look for the same one. I, I don't really have a brand. I don't know what the brand, there's a particular chip on it. And I just look for the same chip and I don't even remember at this point, but I buy like 20 at a time. So, and they're just boring control. They have no, they don't have any intelligence to them. So they don't interfere with the model of the drive or anything. They're not, they're not bridge boards like a USB drive is where you plug something in and it has some intelligence and then tries to interpret something and give you a new model number. These are just plain, you know, it just goes from the IDE cable straight to the SATA controller and that's it. And there's nothing else. Um, so I'll have to find out and tell you next time uh, because I don't really have a particular one. Yeah. I just buy a bunch of them. Now that's cool. Okay, last question I have here is from Simon, and then uh, we'll do that. We'll do that big uh, email next time. All right, Scott. Okay. All right. This was from Simon Zarafa. He says, I know you've discussed the reliability of various brands of hard drives in previous episodes, but I wonder if Scott could go over this again based on his experience. What manufacturers seem to be failing more than others due to design or quality issues? What what common issues do you see with the major hard drive manufacturers? Are RAID, enterprise-rated hard drives really more reliable or of better quality than the general retail or OEM ones. Finally, what maker model of drives does Scott use in his own personal work, business, or PCs? Hope these answers should be fairly interesting. That's from Simon. So the first thing is, is, uh, you know, I, I change what I think is the best drive from time to time, depending upon what the current problems are. Uh, we've whittled away uh, how many manufacturers that we have. Uh, you know, primarily because uh, Fujitsu was purchased by Toshiba, and so now Toshiba. So there's really just Samsung, Toshiba, Hitachi, Seagate, Western Digital, and I think that's it. So we are down to like five manufacturers now. Um, I don't see a lot of Toshiba slash Fujitsu's in for recovery. Uh, they probably because they're you know it's more of a uh, 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 sold in the United States probably would be my guess by comparison to Seagate and Western Digital. Um, I'm not a big fan of Samsung drives. Uh, the funny thing is Samsung's kind of taken over the solid state market and less uh, less of the drive market. And there is a current rumor going around that Samsung may possibly buy Seagate. Really? So there's a there's a possibility here of somebody else getting usurped in this whole process. Wow. Um, Seagate has a lot of head problems and a lot of firmware problems right now, board problems and things getting fried. So that's a current problem with uh, Seagate's. Western Digitals have a lot of head problems. They have a, a head that's actually attached to the drive, uh, to the lid itself. So if there's any movement in the lid, and some people also think that if there's, um, you know, temperature changes a lot, that it causes the lid to contract and the heads, you know, have alignment problems. But they also have a known board problem. And so a lot of the Western Digitals that come in are board problems right now. The end user can't get to his data. I can fix it and almost always get to the data. The problem is, is that it's not something that's easy for them to deal with. Huh. Um, so right now, out of all the drives, I have the least problem with Hitachi's. 
Hitachi's currently right now. Now, keep in mind, Hitachi's with their glass platters and some of their other problems is once one head scratches a platter that it flakes up, causes all the other heads to scratch the rest of the platters. So you still need backup. So I'd still say you need a reiterate, you need some backup or something else going on. But I have less problems. I have had less firmware problems, less bladder problems, less with Hitachi. Now that's three and a halfs. So the three and a halfs, I'm sticking with Hitachi's for the most part right now. Um, I got to be honest, I would probably still buy whoever's the cheapest on the market because I do so many drives. I go through, you know, 50 drives a week or whatever it is. It's a large quantity. So I have a lot of redundancy. Um, but you know, if you're buying a three and a half inch hard drive, I, right now I'm going for Hitachi primarily. If you're doing two and a half inch hard drive, most of the time you're basing it on space again. Um, I don't like Seagate's, you know, one terabytes. They're too thick and they're too big. I'm sticking mostly with uh, Western Digital um, two and a half inch hard drives. They don't have the same head problem or any of the other problems. Uh, they have a, a weird board problem. But for the most part, that's that's the ones that I'm using. Now, the enterprise drives are made better, mainly because the chips and the quality of the chips that they're using have been baked longer and they're better quality than the, and so I get less of those in for recovery, but I still see them. Uh, so they still have problems. They still die, but they are in you know theory, slightly better from a standpoint of their quality of their manufacturer and using a higher quality chip as opposed to the lower end ones. The biggest reason that most people didn't buy like, you know, Western digital green drives versus trying to, you know, buy uh, the Enterprise Edition was because the green drives have a, um, a method in their low power consumption that when a sector goes bad, that it actually causes a timing problem for RAID arrays. And so the drive will just drop off of the RAID array. And so the Enterprise drives uh, were more robust on their timing. And that way they would actually stay on if it was a RAID array and they, would, they wouldn't time out before they would fall off of the RAID array. So ultimately, that would be one of the reasons to buy it. However, recently, supposedly, there's a firmware update that updates the green drives so that they don't have the same timing problems so that they survive on your RAID array. But it's it's up to you to decide whether or not that's true or not. <laughs> um, but if you're doing RAID arrays, enterprise drives are the way to go. If you're just doing individual drives, buy two and back one up to the other. <laughs> <laughs> Very complete answer from Scott there. Hope that helped you, Simon. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. All right. Anytime. Um, Hey, uh, where can people find you? Where are you going to be? Because uh, we've got to end off the show here now. So um, tell us where we can um, find you. Well, the biggest thing is uh, in December, I'm teaching a class in Washington, D.C. So if anybody's interested, uh, knowing that next week is uh, Thanksgiving and stuff, you might want to um, get your seat request in early and buy a seat for uh, Washington, D.C. It's going to be in uh, Chantilly. I'm teaching a five-day class uh, from December 6th, you know, that week, for whatever that week is, 6th to the 10th, I think. Um, and then after that, in January, I'm speaking at uh, – there's a, a DC3 conference or a forensics conference in Atlanta that I'm speaking at. And then I'm going to ShmooCon at the end of January in DC, and I'm speaking at ShmooCon. Um, and then there's a possibility of a class also in January in Atlanta. So otherwise, go to myharddrive.com. And that's where I have all the information on all the stuff. And you can send me an email and I'll tell you whatever I know. Fantastic. If you guys have more questions for the show, just send them to me at mail at podnuts.com. You could also send us voicemails if you want. The number, the official Podnuts number is 7076 Podnut. Um, either way, emails, voicemails, we will take them, we will read them, and we will play them on the show if you have a question for Scott. All right. Uh, well, thank you again, Scott. I appreciate uh, the time. And uh, that's going to be it for this episode of Heart My Hard Drive Died. We'll see you guys next time. Great. Thanks. Thanks.
Music has been provided by Evan King at purevolume.com slash Evan King.